So the last few weeks, we've been learning through James. In particular, we've been learning about faith from a very no-nonsense, stripped-down lens. And today's passages are no different, which means I'm probably going to do more teaching than preaching, but my hope is that at the end of this, we'll come away with the same, uh, the, the same life change that you should expect from any sermon you walk away from. And James has so much to tell us in these close-to-closing chapters that I'm going to follow his no-nonsense lead and get right on with teaching. So please pray with me, and then we'll jump in. Lord, we thank you for this space. We thank you for the ability to gather freely. Um, I thank you for everyone who walked into this building tonight, whether they've been with us for years or if tonight is their first evening. Lord, I pray that whatever words are spoken about your love for us will be absorbed. Let us not disregard any of this, any of this teaching, Lord. Let us not just count ourselves out as if it doesn't apply to us. Really, let it sit on our hearts, Lord. Remove pride or whatever is separating us from you right now so that we can hear what you have to say. We love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, please join me in James. It's in the New Testament all the way in the back, close to the end. Uh, we'll be reading tonight through James 4.13 through James 5.11. It'll be on the screen for you as well. So right now what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through the entire passage, and then we're going to come back and break it down. So let's just run through it together for uh, one time. And some of the words might not be exact, because I think this might be a different translation, but that's okay. You'll get it. All right, so James 4.13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look! The wages you failed to pay the workers who who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So it's a lot, and a lot of it's kind of harsh. Uh... But before we tear apart his words, let's recap who James is as a person so we can better understand where he's coming from. James, we know, is one of Jesus' little brothers, uh, the others being Jude, Simon, and Joseph, half-brothers, of course. 
they're not all Jesus-like. Um, we also know that James wasn't too keen, initially, on the belief that Jesus was who he says he was. And I can kind of understand that tension. I bet I would struggle with that as well. I mean, imagine for one second the kid that you grew up with is sitting at the dinner table with you, discussing the day, and then says, by the way, I'm also the savior of the world. That's quite the announcement that I wouldn't believe if my sister told me. Imagine trying to reconcile that for yourself. So I get why James was slower to believe that Jesus is who he says he was. I get it. The book of John tells us that his brothers just didn't believe him. But then, when he sees the resurrected Christ... Everything changes. His, his heart is set on fire with the gospel, and it doesn't go out until he leaves this earth by stoning. And we see it in this letter all over. In the beginning chapters, he says, Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. After Jesus' resurrection, James goes on to be a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And it's from Jerusalem that he writes this letter. And again, he states in the beginning that this letter is written to the twelve tribes of the dispersion referring to the fact that many new Christians are now scattered through what is now present-day Mediterranean region and the Middle East. They're moving, and they're growing. And James knew they were experiencing persecution as they moved around. Not everyone was super excited about having people convert to Christianity. Still, to this day, people are not so excited about it. But instead of using his counterpart, Paul, so Paul also taught in Jerusalem with him many times, and if you know anything about Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament... Uh, he liked to sandwich bad things, so he would say something really, really kind of mean. But then he'd be like, but you're all so great, and I have faith in you. James doesn't do that at all. James just lays it out on us. He tells it completely like it is. He just goes for it. And we see directness and sharpness throughout the entire letter. And it could part- partially be a personality thing, because I am convinced that James was definitely a fellow Enneagram 8. Any other 8s with me in this room? Oh my god, I'm the only eight here. Oh, wow. Okay, this changes everything. All right. In D.C., too? All right. Uh, But I also think it's just, it's more than that. It's more than a personality thing, because I think as the church is moving, people are getting in the way of the story of Jesus, a story that James knows very, very deeply. They're getting in the way, and that means that they're beginning to shift the church to look like the world instead of having the world look like the church. So he pens this letter with all the things he's seeing that are separating them from God. So with that in mind, let's take a look back at James 4, verse 13. He says, Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city and spend a year there, carry on business and make money. And you notice it's in quotes. So James is actually mocking these people. Uh, he apparently heard this, potentially in the market somewhere, and he couldn't believe what he heard, the statement, that they would just say this as if it was fact. And during this time, middle class wasn't something that existed. You were either poor or you were rich. That was it. And this piece is specifically, obviously, speaking to the wealthy, because you had to be rich to consider something like this. This idea that you would, one, make a plan to leave for a year, and then it would be totally fine, and then you would come back when you planned? Mm-mm. That was impossible for the poor. And also, they assume that they are in control of where they are going. They assume they are in control of how they're going to do it, how long they're going to do it for. And they also assume that they have control over whether or not this is going to be a profitable trip. They just know. 
And I identify with these people as the only eight in this room um, because the illusion of control is something that I've always gravitated towards. Uh, even as a kid, I remember my prayers were always very specific. Uh, every, this is not a joke. Every day I would pray for my grandma and grandpa to be alive for 10 more years. 10 years was a really long time to me at that point in my life. <laughs> Just 10 more years, Jesus, 10 more years. And then I would also pray every day as my parents were coming home from work for safety. But I wouldn't just send a little safety prayer up. I would go through the entire list of all the possible things that could happen to them on their way home, just so God knew what I meant by safety. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was me as a kid. Uh, and I'm sure God was like, mm, okay, that sounds good. But I wasn't in control then, right? Assuming that you're in control is not the same thing as actually being in control. So he goes on to say to these people, why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We are nothing but a breath. A mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. This is why James takes a no BS approach to this letter. He has no time for nice words. Our lives are but a mist, and he knows it, and he's screaming it through the pages. The most important thing a human can ever learn is who they are and who God is. Knowing those things is so significant, because if these people understood that their life was but a breath, they would remember to include the Lord in their planning. Everything is not in our control, no matter how many walls of protection we put up, no matter how smart or how much money we have, we are all still just a mist. A great sister book to the book of James is the book of Proverbs. And uh, Proverbs 69 is perfect for this. The heart of the man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. That's how it goes, whether we like it or not. Our time on this earth will go faster than we think. And James is yelling through the pages that this life is fragile and short. We only have now. I could leave this place as soon as I walk out. I almost got hit three times outside of the Columbia Heights Church a few weeks ago walking with Josh McComas. It's possible. And I was only crossing the street. Okay? Our life is but a mist. So we should make plans, but we should always ask the Lord to disrupt them if they are not of his will. Speaking of that, moving on to verse 15, it says, Instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Quick side tangent. I lived in the Philippines for a few years, and as I'd be working with my coworkers, planning an event, uh, or even just a big meeting, and I'd ask them, you know, okay, I'll see you tomorrow at this time for the event. And even if they had, like, a major role in it, they would look at me and say, yes, puhon which means Lord willing. And then I would look at them and be like, but you're coming, right? You're going to be there? And they're like, mm-hmm, puhon. And I would get so frustrated all the time because that was always their response. But they were saying, yes, I will do everything in my power to be there, 100%. But I am wise, much wiser than you, Angela, to know that I am not completely in control. Anything could happen tomorrow to shift my plans. So me, yes, I will try to be there. Hopefully I'll see you tomorrow. Every single meeting. And the plans of the people James is speaking about aren't bad, right? Planning is not bad. 
But planning without the Lord is a dead end, and James knew what they were doing, so he called them out. And they're only missing that one phrase, if the Lord wills. But that one phrase changes everything, because that one phrase releases control. And the concept of Lord willing and people using that often throughout their lives or thinking that it's the Lord's will to do this or that um, often comes with conversations about predestination or free will in general. And I'm not ever interested in having those conversations. One, because I'm wise enough to know that as a human, I know very, very little about the God who created the universe and his preferred governing style. And also, I don't know how conversations about whether or not God caused a plane crash are helpful for us spreading the gospel. It's just a non-starter for me. So for me, Lord willing is this idea that we're hoping, Lord willing, that in this broken place, because God is not broken, he will continue to intervene. He will continue to work with us. So to repeat, plans are not bad. When we actually know who is in control, we can release ourselves from pretending to be that person. And in addition to planning, we see another illusion of control come up in chapter 5. Money. Chapter 5 starts with, now listen. Again, that call for them to come forward. Some, of, some versions say, come now. He really wanted their attention. Listen, come now. I have something to tell you. You rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Whew. James puts our wallets and our Bibles together here. In fact, the Bible is constantly telling us to be wary of money. Do you know how many times the Bible talks about money? Over 2,000 times throughout Scripture. 2,000. Jesus warned of riches often as well, with the classic in Luke, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Being rich is not a sin, but misusing wealth is. And remember, God only cares about money because he knows that we do. It means nothing to God. He doesn't need it. But because he's constantly fighting against it for our hearts, he cares about it a lot. And most of us are probably, probably immediately overlook this passage because chapter 5 starts with, come now, you rich people. And we're like, okay, we'll sit this one out. Not for me. But here's the thing. It's for all of us. If we knew either where our food was coming from or that we could purchase food somewhere today, it is for us. Uh, there's this website called the Global Rich List. Has anyone ever heard of it? Becky, I knew it. Yeah. Uh, but it's this great uh, tool where you can put in what your annual salary is, and it can tell you how rich you are in comparison to the rest of the world. And wow, I'm rich. I was just asking God for money, the, more money the other day, too. Legit. And the amount of things that my salary can buy throughout the entire world is astounding. This is for us. And every time I think of stewarding money well, I think of a story I heard from a pastor about his child coming up to him and hearing and asking if he must have heard somewhere if $50,000 was a lot of money to make every year for your salary. And the pastor's response was, it is until you make it, which is the truth. It makes me wonder how often our money issues are actually stewardship issues. But back to James. 
Uh, the people James is talking to definitely were not stewarding their money well. What were they spending it on? Things. Clothes that presumably still have tags on in their closet and jewelry that was maybe worn once to that fancy event. And also many versions of this passage say that the gold and silver will rust, which makes me chuckle because gold can't do that. And uh, I can imagine James sitting in his little house in Jerusalem thinking like, what do rich people have that I can talk about? Because he clearly was not rich, right? This is a good indication. Um, Yeah. And I deeply doubt that all the things they own, even in their closet full of things, would ever pass the Marie Kondo Joy test. Right? But it goes deeper than their things corroding. James says that the things that they have will eat their flesh like fire. Or in other words, the decaying will not stop with your things. The guilt of your transgressions will come against your conscience and chip away at your mind. It will eat you alive. But just like the passage before wasn't about planning in general, this isn't about wealthy equals bad, but more so wealthy equals distracted. That's what it does to us. Because the less you need to rely on God for your daily needs, the more distracted you become by the things that you can buy to get through the day, the things that you can buy to entertain you. James isn't really talking about money for money's sake. He's talking about it precisely because of its ability to create a false sense of independence, a false sense of control. And James reminds them all that their wealth will go away. The things that we're surrounding ourselves with will also wither. And if you need modern-day proof that money can cause major problems if not stewarded correctly, just Google lottery winner horror stories. Lives just absolutely ruined because stewardship was not a part of the plan. It doesn't matter how much money you have if you don't steward it well. So it's not about the money. It's about what the money can create because we are influenced constantly by our environments. It's about the illusion of the independence that distracts us and then the pride that changes us. And we see how pride causes nasty behavior in the next verses. Chapter chapter 5, 4 through 6 says, Look, The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. So how did they maintain their wealth? They robbed their workers of their wages. Remember, there were only poor and rich in the group that James was speaking to and many more poor than rich. And because of the broken world that we live in, the Lord knew what was going to happen to the poor here. So much so that he instructed his people all the way back in Deuteronomy and Exodus to set up extra protections for the poor. In Deuteronomy, it states that they are to release loans every seven years so that people don't spend their lives indebted. Everyone with student loans says yes and amen. Right? You are to provide interest-free loans in general to the poor. And in Exodus, they're instructed, the harvesters are instructed to leave food, crops on the ground, so that the poor can come and fetch it should they need it. And so James's outrage here is based on them ignoring everything they know they're supposed to do. 
Things that have been ingrained within their society for generations. And they're not even paying them their earned wages, so there's no way they're setting up these extra protections for these people. And note where it says, the cries of the harvesters have reached either the Lord of hosts or Lord Almighty. When you see something that strong, that's an indication that James is not just talking about God for God's sake. He is talking about God, God, the one who controls the army of heaven. When you see any phrase like that within scripture, that's somebody giving a warning to someone else saying, oh, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Oh, God knows. And God has an entire army that also knows that information now. It was a warning. And we continue on. This is where it gets interesting. James 5, 7 through 8 starts with, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord is coming near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Now remember, James was just speaking to people who were wealthy, and now we see him shift to the poor. So within the community that he's talking to, we know that both are present. And agriculture imagery is all over scripture, mainly because that's how people got their food, right? So people could associate with it. The analogies made a lot of sense to them. Their, their livelihoods depended on them understanding these things, on them understanding what it means to be patient. And meanwhile, I, over here, thought that pineapples grew on a tree until I was 23. That was shocking. So a lot of times the analogies of agriculture go right over my head. I just didn't get it. But when farmers plant, they get it. Right? They know a seed just went into the ground, but their eye is never, ever, ever on the seed. It's always on the harvest. Always. And the Greek words used here for patience, um, in this verse, the patience here is to wait with anticipation. That's what it is. The farmers cannot control whether the spring or autumn rains come. They cannot control if the soil is good or garbage. But they can be expectant. Because they've seen this before. They have seen the Lord turn seeds into harvest over and over again. So although they can't control the situation, they can be expectant that the one who does will do it again. That's their patience here. And it makes me wonder how often we disregard the seeds that God is giving us after we've asked for the harvest. We don't even recognize them as connected because they don't look anything like it. And I get... Uh, the irony of somebody who can't really keep a snake plant alive talking to you about seeds and harvest. But I say that as both a teacher and a student. How many times have I done that? Throughout the years of my relationship with the Lord, I think um, the most, one of the most important things I've learned is that so often the promises and desires and plans that God has put in my heart were put there for the purpose of not now. That's the best thing I've learned as somebody who is not naturally patient. And I've seen it play out over and over again. They're there, but for the purpose of not now. A life with God depends on his timing, not ours. And there is no room for faith with impatience. None. The farmers get that. 
And it goes on, chapter 5, 9 through 11. It says, don't grumble, oh, I already read that. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance or endurance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Now, more than anything that I'm saying today, I want you to hear this part. Uh, Because this segment of the passage is not just about patience. It's about patience through suffering. And as James shifts his attention to talking to the poor here, he says something that will resonate with them. And I know they didn't miss it then, and they don't miss it now. When we can't change people or a situation, James is saying, be patient. And James specifically mentions prophets here because he knows that the people he's speaking to will understand the type of patience necessary to be a prophet. Imagine the prophet Isaiah talking about the coming of Christ hundreds of years before Christ comes. And he has to repeat this over and over again to people who probably think he might be crazy. But he's going to keep doing it because he knows that to be the truth that he has received from the Lord. And the Greek word here for um, patience translates to something taking a long time to get heated. So it's this idea that you're supposed to remain under pressure for a long time. This is the type of patience that is required of you. This is what faith takes. You sit under this pressure cooker for a long time. This book is written to early Christians who are scattered all over. Um, Many of these Christians, as stated, were being persecuted. And it's interesting that he still doesn't add in many hugs. Uh, He just goes right to the point because he wants to save their lives. And there are many people uh, who can still face death by just proclaiming the name of Jesus. And here James is saying, still, make sure that patience is something that you can remain under for a long time, even if it's pressurized. That's the type of patience it takes to follow Christ. And I think as people from a wealthy nation, we often forget that suffering is a part of life. I know I can say that for myself. For many years, I thought that. Uh, We try to separate ourselves from the concept of suffering by making plans, by buying lots of things, by keeping safe. But no matter how hard we try, we can't avoid suffering. We just can't. We can run from it for a while, but we can't avoid it. So then when it does come, we are not prepared because we don't think it should happen to us. We haven't accepted it as an uncomfortable but normal part of the human experience, so we break as it arrives. And when it happens, we're left wondering, why me? Lord, why did this happen to me? I heard that so many times growing up. Unbelievable tragedies would happen to these good families in my church. And everyone would say, I just can't believe it happened to them. As if they were somehow occupying a hazard-free zone. And I've said this to myself many times with the multiple family hardships that I have. I've, words like, this doesn't happen to families like mine, have come out of my mouth as if we're somehow protected. It's not the case. Suffering is for everyone. 
Because once we understand that suffering happens to both the wicked and the righteous and accept it as a part of life, we can stop constantly asking God, why did this happen to me? And start asking him, how are you going to get me through it? We can stop trying to separate our suffering from his love or question where God is in suffering. He's right there. The Lord lives in suffering just as much as he lives in joy. Following Jesus actually is still a death penalty for many. We forget that. Um, We forget that underground churches are somehow uh, still happening as the only safe places for people to to talk about the Lord. Uh, The other day I was texting a friend because I felt wronged about something and I was being really snotty. And not to this friend, but I was, this is even worse, I was texting about someone else uh, that I felt wronged by. And... I'm venting, and then not even 10 minutes later, I see a photo that was taken just last week of a man who received 80 lashes for being caught taking Holy Communion. And I thought I was suffering because someone was mean to me. Right? That's a reality. Like, accepting, and hopefully that will never, ever happen to any of us, but the reality is that many people who still pick up this gospel read it as if it's present day. Many of the issues are still afflicting people all over the world. Nothing is going to protect us from some level of suffering in our life. All of this is connected. The lens we need to rely on God for our daily needs, the, more, the less we need to rely on God for our daily needs, the more we buy things to replace his presence, and then the less we accept suffering as a part of our own human experience. We trick ourselves. So why is James telling us all of this, and so boldly? I think I first find the idea that James uses this letter to talk to both the rich and the poor, um, and really calling out the rich and not so much calling out the poor, uh, is interesting, particularly in, in these chapters, because it's very clear that he shifts from speaking to the rich to the poor. And it's so obvious that the antidote for the rich was given to the poor, right? The idea of this patience. So obvious to me as a reader so many years later, because I feel like if the rich understood how to wait on the Lord, perhaps they wouldn't be hastily making plans. Perhaps they would be better stewards of their money. Perhaps they would know who was in control so hoarding wouldn't be on the agenda. But we all know that patience is arguably the least favorite of the fruits of the Spirit, because it takes time. It's only proven under trial. That's how we learn if we're patient. Patience and faithfulness are the only ones that take that time. And I think cultivating patience is the root of being faithful because the heart of patience is releasing control. We are not proved to be faithful people by one experience. We are proved to be faithful people when the sum of our character illustrates time and time again that our action was towards the Lord and not away. Because patience only grows or develops under trial. And the faithful, when they wait... They're not just waiting still. The faithful are continuing to work out the gospel as they wait. They're continuing to worship as they wait. They watch in awe and not bitterness as God fulfills the promises he's made to others because they know that their promises are not your promises, right? And that with God, nothing runs dry, so there's enough for us too. Patience is knowing that you're not in control, but you know the one who is ever abundant, And daily practices of patience prepare us for a season of patience, right? It's that daily discipline. 
And if we can't do it in the simple, we can't do it in the big. We know this to be true about absolutely everything else in our life outside of our relationship with God. We think that going to God and not having a prayer answered immediately means no. That's not the case. God is not Amazon, right? He doesn't respond to us like that. He is not on our timeline. We are on his And just look at the trajectory throughout these passages. We start with people planning things about the Lord, not recognizing they are following selfish ambition while they boast in their success, followed by an accumulation of things they accumulated because they kept the money they should have been giving to their workers. And then James tries to explain to them the concept of patience. And it's amazing that this was written so long ago because I feel like you change a few things and he is talking directly to us. And what James has been trying to tell us through this letter is that all it takes is a few deviations from God to move us completely out of relationship with him. It doesn't have to be some big, spectacular breakup. Just a few things to distract us enough. And James's letter is not instructing us to stop doing one of these things to be faithful. He's telling us that we must stop all of these things to be faithful. All of these lessons of faith prepare us to actually realize God's faithfulness. And removing these boundaries sets us up for moving into the rhythms of spiritual disciplines and how through them we are able to keep more distractions at bay. So this week, I ask you to do two things. Reread all of James. Y'all, it'll take you 25 minutes. It is not that long, and it is very important. Reread it, and as you go through it, as James is calling out all of these things that these people are doing that are moving them away from the Lord, circle the ones that apply to you. Circle them, and ask the Holy Spirit to remove that from your life, or to bring it up when it happens, so that you're able to make better decisions. And also, number two, release control of whatever that thing is you've been holding on to so tightly. That thing that you will not, that you're assuming control over, which you probably don't have. But release it. Release that illusion. Because up until this point in James, everything is practical. Everything. But as Pastor Jess moves us to the closing chapters of James next week, she'll show us how all of this ends with the supernatural power of prayer. But before we can get to the supernatural, we need to focus on the super practical. That's why it's laid out like this. James is teaching us that practical discipline set our hearts in motion to recognize the supernatural power of God that is happening every single day in all spaces. But if our tongue is too busy bad-mouthing people, if our words are distracted by complaints, if we treat our interactions with God as instant gratification, the miracles will pass without our knowing. And then we will resign ourselves to believe that God is not in this place. There is too much at risk right now with the table church to believe that God is not in this place. Too much. So as we move into 21 days of prayer next week, we need all hands on deck. We need everybody to be present. We need expectant hearts and open hands. With the same urgency of James, then, I ask you all to start releasing your illusion of control this week. And just come ready next Sunday to be completely expectant upon the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the so many things that you want to tell us. 
Um, we thank you for the words of James. We thank you for his life. We thank you for the way that he loved you and loved your son. I pray, Lord, that as we leave this place, uh, our hearts are not closed to these words. I pray that you, you give us soft hearts right now to absorb what you're saying and fully discern what those things are within our lives that we have assumed control over, that we are doing that distracts us from you. Whatever it is, Lord Jesus, I pray that you just remove it. We have no time for distractions, not now. Holy Spirit, work in each of us as we leave this place and go on our week. We love you. Amen.